Okay, uh, third sermon in the series together. I'm very excited about sermon. You know, uh, uh, I was looking at my notes early this morning. I was thinking, you know, I, sometimes I get annoyed at the, the, the young celebrity pastors, you know, the, the, the millennials with the skinny jeans. And I, I get annoyed that they're always, they're always pumped. Everything they do. If, 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 if they're going to have coffee hour, they're pumped. They're jacked. They're excited, <laughs> you know, and, and that, my generation, we didn't talk like that. It was, it was more spiritual. We were more spiritual. But I looked at my notes this morning and said, I am pumped to preach this message. <laughs> I'm really excited without this sermon. And so let's get right into it. it, it the, the title, you're going to wonder, why is he excited? <laughs> the title's terrible. Uh, I'm going to preach on toxic togetherness, Okay. <laughs> We've talked about better together, stronger together. Now we need to take a moment to talk about how we cannot be toxic together. 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen says, In the following directives, I, I uh, have no praise for you. Now listen to this. this is, you've, you've hired a church consultant, right? So you've hired the Apostle Paul to be your church consultant. And the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. (laughs) Thanks a lot. We paid you $15,000 to tell us our meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. Um, No doubt there have to be some differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it is not to eat the Lord. It's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup, For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. In other words, you're killing your church. But if you were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give you further directions. So, Paul, the church, church, culture, church consultant, imagine him saying, your meetings do more harm than good. Yikes. Paul is saying to, to the Corinthians, you're toxic together. Now, We can't use the world's definition of toxic relationships here, even though it has validity, by the way. 
we can't use it here because the world's definition of toxic relationships is any relationship that makes you feel drained emotionally or damages your self-esteem. There's a place to talk about that, but that's not, that doesn't work here. Paul defines a toxic Christian relationship as one where the death of Jesus, and this is so important, is not being lived out. The death of Jesus is not being lived out by love, acceptance, and forgiveness. James 3.16 simply says, Where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Um, Let me give you an illustration. Uh, Early in my ministry, I was pastoring a church in the center of town in Westville, Massachusetts. And uh, this was about 1982, 1981. And I remember one, one uh, I believe it was a Monday morning, that a fellow in the church named Roger Cordes shows up in my office, and he's red-faced, and I could tell he wasn't happy. And he says to me, the first words out of his mouth, he sits in front of me across my desk and says, I am angry. I said, well, what happened, Roger? Well, yesterday in church, as it turned out, his children were misbehaving in church, not sitting with their parents, misbehaving, And Sherry was sitting near them, and she got on them and told them to quiet down. And that made him angry. And I don't remember all that we talked about that day. I think we ended up meeting Sherry and I and the whole family, and we eventually worked it out. But that wasn't what happened in that conversation, that we worked out the problem, or that we worked out the situation, or we found out who was guilty and who wasn't. Were the kids guilty because they were being misbehaving? Was Sherry guilty because she was a little too harsh? Who was guilty? Let's have court. Who's guilty? Who's the most guilty? No, well, you know what happened in that meeting with Roger and I? Is we decided we loved each other. We decided that whoever did what and whoever was off a little bit this way or that way didn't matter. But what mattered... You see, the world, in the world, in the world... You try to work out your problems, and then if you can work out your differences, then you love each other. In the church, you love each other and, yeah. and, and move, move close to each other, and then over time, you work out your differences. Amen. It's, a back, it's backward. It's the cross of Jesus. It's the kingdom of God. Amen. Communion is, is the call for us to be the living crucifixion. You know, in fact, Roger and I began to meet for prayer. I would go out to his house more than one morning a week at 5, 5.30 in the morning, people go to work, and we prayed together. We did that for years, and we became best friends. And uh, I know Roger's not well today, and I need to get down there through COVID. I didn't want to go see him, but I need to get down there to Westfield and see him uh, because the relationship was first. Perhaps, uh, you know, the Latin word for crucifixion is crux, which means that which is central. In other words, it is the crux of the matter. So the relationships of people in the church, must the cross must be the crux. The, the, the crucifixion of Jesus, the death of Jesus. He said, he said that communion, which I know, I know we just think about the, the, the little wine or juice and, and the little piece of bread today. But Jesus, Paul was letting us know that communion is way about something way deeper and way bigger than just the elements. But that actually we are the elements of communion. One another, the one another is. And so Paul is, says, based on, based on perhaps the most toxic church in the New Testament, Paul's letter to them, 
uh, says, here's how, you, here's how you're not living out the cross, and here's how I want you to do it. By the way, Corinth was, Corinth was an outstanding church in many ways. If you just read the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians 1, you would think this church was perfect. They were, they were full of spiritual gifts. Paul commends them for being full of spiritual gifts. Paul commends them for their great faith in Christ. Paul presents it to them in those first nine verses. He presents them a picture of them standing holy before God at the end of all time. He, does not, he presents them as a wonderful church, but there's a few problems here. So, I want to talk today, uh, I want to look at Corinth, and I want to say, I want to point out some ways that we can make sure we're healthy together, that we can make sure we're not toxic together. So, to avoid toxic togetherness, here's my commitment to you, and here's where I want you to hold me accountable, is I want to be a noticer and a discerner, not an overlooker and a disregarder. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty two says, Don't you have homes to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? Now, here's, here, here's almost all the problems at Corinth did not have to do with their private lives. It had to do with their meetings. It had to do with, with the way they were behaving when they had an opportunity to be in one another's presence. The Bible in that text that I read to you makes it very clear that we have and still can have private lives. Now, a private life is not a secret life. You don't get to have a secret life if you're going to walk with Jesus. But you can have a, you have a private life. Uh, you know, uh, 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 Paul, does not, um, Paul does not say, okay, those people that you go to communion with, you have to go on vacation with all of them. You know? There's nothing wrong with, we're always going to, uh, once we leave this building, we're going to, we're, we're going to congregate according to interest to some degree. I'm not talking about your small group meeting, I'm not talking about other groups that you work with, other things, but in terms of your private life, it, 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 there, there's going to be a group of people in every church and every group that goes skiing, and, and, and everybody's not going to, doesn't want to go skiing. Everybody can't afford to go skiing. Then there's a group of guys that play golf. Everybody doesn't want to play golf. And I got, honest to goodness, I got a text the other day with a group of people inviting me to go walking dogs with them. <laughs> yes. Ward Wetherill and Stephanie, their house is a zoo. I, I don't have a dog. I, I you know, but I'm gonna, you know, Ward, you invite me. I'm gonna go someday just to see what it's like to hang out with people who've gone to the dogs. <laughs> so there's nothing wrong with being a get together with your dog people. There's nothing wrong with getting together with your golf buddies. There's nothing wrong with getting together with the people who like to go ski. There's nothing wrong, you know, I know a person in this church who loves to quilt. And she goes off to the Cape to be with other women who love to make quilts. Nothing wrong with being a quilt maker. Nothing wrong with enjoying getting a quilter. You know, I was in a restaurant one time, and, and my brother and I were in this restaurant one time. In fact, it was in Westfield, Massachusetts. And there was a group of women who raised rhododendrons. 
And they talked so loud about rhododendrons that we had to move away so we could talk because they were so excited about rhododendrons. I am not going to come to your rhododendron conversation. I have no interest in rhododendrons. I like to look at them. They're beautiful, right? Huh? A hydrangea, so we got a hydrangea person. <laughs> what Paul is trying to say that the deeper meaning of the sacraments of meeting together is that we build into our lives, this is so important, regular times to notice and engage all the members of the body of Christ. When the church meets, it's a sacred event because the body and blood of Christ is literally being embodied whether we serve communion or not. In that moment when you and I don't notice others or when I intentionally or unintentionally just reconnect with my people, with my rhododendron club people, or I just go connect with my dog people and I don't notice everybody else and what they need and what's going on, I'm not discerning the body of Christ. The purpose of church meetings is to affirm everyone's significance. I tend to get in the bantering relationships with people during the week. I like to banter. So I'll have, I'll have somebody in the church that I've been sending memes back and forth all week. We've been, we've been, we've been yucking it up about something. We've been making fun of somebody. <laughs> I know it's terrible. I know. I know, I know you disapprove. <laughs> but God's going to deal with you for judging me. But you know what will happen to me on Sunday morning? I'll, I'll be up here, and maybe that person's sitting around in the front. Guess who I want to talk to right at the church? The guy I've been bantering with all week. So I'll go right off the stage. In fact, one day, Jason actually encouraged us to start noticing one another after the service was dismissed and not just gathering with the three friends that we've been talking to all week already. And I did it. I went down to that person that I'd been talking to during the week, and we're talking, to, we're just going at it, and we look at each other and we go, wait a minute, he just asked us not to do this. So I repent, I repent. I, and and the, the reason, you know, this is so serious. It's just serious. Uh, and not that, not that noticing is you're, you're just looking, because you notice, you're to notice with discernment. And it's not just looking for the people who's down and out and broken. It's not that. You're not just looking for the people that are, but you are, but you are. And I heard of a man who lost his child, and he was a, he was a strong believer, but he was visiting in another city. He had to be in this other city for business, and his child had died that week, and he was so brokenhearted. And he went to church, and he just needed somebody to talk to him, and he went to the wrong church because he went to a church that nobody greeted him. Nobody came over to him after service. Nobody said, hi, my name is. How are you? And you all know that moment when you look at a person, you say, how are you? And every once in a while, you know you need to hang in there and, and ask more questions. And you need to talk to them longer. Most, a lot of times, it's a fist bump. How are you doing? God bless you. I love you. Have a great week. You did your duty. But then every once in a while, there's that person that God will play in, in our midst whose heart is breaking. In fact, if you look at them sometimes at the end of the sermon, it may have something to do with what was preached. There will be tears in their eyes. The worst thing, I would be so brokenhearted if we don't notice them. 
If we let them come in this building and go out, and our meetings do not reflect the body of Christ, our meetings do not reflect the cross, see, uh, every once in a while there's going to be more. We don't, see, we don't properly calculate, and this is something that groups have to be very careful of. We don't properly calculate the pain of inflicting insignificance on another person. When researchers use a functional magnetic resonance imaging scanner to track neural responses to exclusion, you know what they found out? They found that people who were left out of a group activity displayed heightened, to use the term their article said, cortical activity in two specific areas of the brain. And those two specific areas are the dorsal anterior and the cingulate cortex. And those two areas are the areas of the brain associated with the experience of physical pain. Physical sensation of pain. So it hurts, quite literally, to be left out. So God brings us together. And that's what Corinthians is about. I'm bringing you together in these meetings. Sunday morning, small group. I'm, uh, other times of fellowship. I'm gonna, uh, you, you, if, if you're going to live out the Christian life the way it's intended to be lived out, on your schedule, it's going to be times when you meet with people. And sometimes, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 all the time. You will meet with people because, of your, because you are related by the blood of Jesus. You will meet with people that you would not hang out with otherwise. Amen. I know Tim Keller talks about this. He's very frank one day. He said, you know, as a pastor, he said, I minister and hang with people that I would never have anything to do with. We weren't Christian. <laughs> and that's the truth. That's true, because we're not, we're not related by interest. We're not, related by, we're not even related by, our, by our, our needs. We're related by the fact that Jesus died for us. We're related by the fact that we have confessed Christ and we have become a, a part of one another's body. If you look at the metaphors throughout Corinthians, one of the great metaphors that Paul says to the Corinthians, you are a body. You are a physical, you're like a physical body. We all know about that. So let me move on. To avoid toxic togetherness, I want to be a respecter and admirer, not an inspector and a critic. Said another way, I want to be a celebrator, not a critic. Yeah. 1 Corinthians 1.11, my brothers and sisters, some from Close House have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is one of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Paulus. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. See, the dysfunction at Corinth was that they were sitting around inspecting and critiquing who was worthy of their most honor and respect. Their conversation should have gone like this. The way it went was, I like Apostle Paul, the way he preaches, and the way he brings the word. Simon Peter, I like him. He's a traditionalist. He, he's, he, he reminds us of our Jewish roots, and he's a traditionalist, and, and a or I like Apollos. He's polished. He's like a Tim Keller. He's polished. He's smart. He's eloquent. I, or, 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 forget it. I'm with Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is my guy. <laughs> what they should have been saying was, it should have gone like this. You know I love Paul. I respect the way he has really shown us what Jesus accomplished on the cross and the way he loves us so much here at Corinth. What amazing stamina he has. Remember that time? We heard about him. He preached all night. What stamina? 
What, what love he must have that he would, he would preach all night. He would preach the word of God all night to try to make us understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And Apollos, oh, what a great thinker. What, what a great, amazing speaker. The Bible says in Acts 18, 24, and a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This is what I have to say about him. And, and what about, and, and, and Simon Peter, Oh, man, he's amazing, too. Simon Peter is so passionate about Jesus, and he always reminds us to appreciate the Jewish roots of our faith and to honor the nation of Israel. To the Jews in the church, man, when Simon Peter comes around, that's, it's so encouraging to the Jews in our church when he comes around. And it's, it's so inform, informational to the Gentiles and helps them to be sensitive to the Jewish culture. Thank God for Simon Peter. Thank God for Cephas. And of course, Christ is our first love, and we follow these men as they follow Christ. Aren't we fortunate to have all these leaders in our lives? That's the way we're supposed to think. In other words, we're supposed to celebrate everybody's gift. We're supposed to celebrate everybody's strengths. I am toxic when I use those of you that I prefer. Listen carefully to me this morning. I am toxic when I use those of you I prefer to measure the rest of you. There's nothing wrong with preferring certain people. But often the people I prefer have nothing to teach me. Because I'm already like them. I already have them down. The people that I don't prefer are often the people who have the most to teach me. And so if you only celebrate the people in the church that you prefer, you will miss the people that often have the most to teach you. I got one amen. That's great. Thank you, Melissa. (laughs) John Grisham said, critics should find meaningful work. (laughs) The great godly John Grisham, right? Douglas Murray said, it's very easy to be a critic. He said it's hard to create. Yet it's creation, not criticism, that builds societies and indeed inspires people and gives life meaning. And of course my favorite, perhaps my favorite non-biblical quote of all time is Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt, by the way, is one of my heroes. One of my political heroes. He said, it is not the critic who counts. Not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done much better, them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood and who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to be, actually strive to do the deeds, who knows, with great enthusiasm the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end of the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. So look at the people that are lifting heavy loads. Don't you dare criticize them. Celebrate them. Don't you dare criticize and find fault with the people who are lifting heavy loads, as well as those who are not. Celebrate, okay? 
So finally, number three. To avoid toxic togetherness, and I'm telling you what I want to be. I'm telling you what God is telling me I need to do better at, not just telling you what you need to be better at. I want to be a uniter and a connector, not a divider and a separator. Jesus said, when I am lifted up, I will draw them into me. You see, what the Corinthians did or did not realize, and, and I think uh, in life, I think you will agree with this, that it's, it's, the, it's, it's our flaws that we're unaware of that are the most monstrous. The things we don't know we're doing. The, th- the ways we don't know. I have a feeling at those communion meals that the people who had more, who were able to bring more food to the meal because they were wealthy, I got a feeling, I, can, I think I know exactly what happened. I don't think they intended to let people go home hungry. I don't think that's what they intended. I think, I think they probably had uh, uh, tables like we do out in the gym. We put on the gym circles. And I think the people who, had, who, who went skiing together and played golf together and had a little more money probably sat together in circles and didn't even see the people at the other table who didn't have any food didn't have anything to drink or didn't have enough food to drink because they were poor and 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 I, I got a feeling it was was I got a feeling it was uh, the, the most the most uh, harmful things I do are often the unconscious things and that's why I need Apostle Paul to come along and point it out to me once in a while I, I need the Apostle I need I need that person to come and help me to see hold up the mirror for me now, here's why this is so important. Jesus said, when I'm lifted up, I will draw them into me. Here's the insight. When I'm drawn to Jesus, and you are drawn to Jesus, what happens? We both move closer to Jesus. That's a no-brainer, right? When you're drawn to Jesus, I am drawn to Jesus. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw them into me. Jesus is magnetic. It's, if, if you come to church, you're going to be drawn to Jesus. You're going to be drawn to the songs that lift up Jesus. You're going to be drawn to the sermons that lift up Jesus. You're going to be drawn to everything that lifts up Jesus. That's natural. So if you're drawn to Jesus, you're going to be closer to Jesus. And if you're drawn to Jesus, Bella and Megan are drawn to Jesus, and Sherry and I are drawn to Jesus, Bella and Megan and Sherry and Phil are closer to Jesus. But that's not all. Bill and Megan and Sherry Phil are closer to each other because they're drawn to Jesus, right? So when I come to the church meeting and I act out my preferences and with my body language and, or my neglect of your need for warmth or even food if a meal is being served, I'm not only moving away from you, I'm moving away from Jesus. If there's anyone in the building if there's anyone in this building that you wouldn't be willing to go over and when COVID restrictions are over, <laughs> that you wouldn't be willing to go over, and I'm starting to give some hugs anyway. I, I live on the edge. <laughs> but if there's anyone in this building that you would not go over to and give them a big bear hug and tell them I love you, 
then you're not living close to Jesus. If there's anybody in this building, anyone who comes into this building that you would not go over to, give them a bear, big bear hug and tell them from the bottom of your heart, I love you. I'm, I belong to you. You belong to me. Your problem is not with them. Your problem is with Jesus. I said your problem is not with them. Your problem is with Jesus. God hates God hates division. 1 Corinthians 1.13, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? 1 Corinthians 11.18, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. 1 Corinthians 12.22, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the hand cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lack, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Proverbs 16, 19 lists six things the Lord hates. And the last thing on his hate list is one who sows discord among brothers. Romans 16, 17 says, Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. Avoid them. Titus 3, 10, 11 says, And for a person who stirs up divisions, as for a person who stirs up divisions, after warning him, him, him or her once and then twice, have nothing more to do with them, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. That person has a spiritual problem. He doesn't say only deal with a divisive person if they can't give a good reason for being divisive. Do you hear what I said? He he didn't say, he didn't say only deal with a divisive person if they can't give you a good reason as to why they're angry. If they can give you a good reason, then you say, okay, I understand. I understand why you have to separate yourself because they are so difficult. No. You can't tolerate it. Jesus does not tolerate it. No matter what another person may be or not be in the church of Jesus Christ, he does not tolerate us assigning, listen carefully, he does not tolerate us assigning insignificance or being dismissive to another member of the body of Christ. And that's the one person that he says, kick them out of your church if they will continue, if they insist on being divisive. We're not going to, I'm not going to, don't worry, you're, you're safe. So far. I love the lessons learned. I, cl- I conclude with this. I love the lessons learned from St. Benedict, who in about the fourth century, St. Benedict, came from a very wealthy family, by the way, very elite family. And St. Benedict lived in Rome and uh, was very devout and uh, wanted to live a holy life and wanted to raise up disciples who would follow Christ and also be holy. But as uh, Rome began to disintegrate in every way and the Goths and the Visigoths began to come into the city, he uh, concluded that he could not live a holy life or raise up holy people in Rome and so he left Rome and he lived in a cave for three years 
And as he uh, lived in this cave, and people would bring him food and all this and sustenance, people also began to come because he would spend his days in prayer. And people began to come to him for, for, uh, for counsel and have him pray for them. And I, I'm not suggesting that, that anybody should do what he did. I mean, he's probably a little bit of a strange guy, right? But God uses strange people sometimes. Sometimes it's a strange person who's a bit weird and who would go live in a cave for three years. But sometimes in history, it's a person like that that God uses. And, and so he eventually comes out and he builds a monastery and a community. And in that community, he, begin to, he begins to teach uh, people how to live and love and work together and how to be industrious and eventually built 14 communities around Italy. 14 communities where people were taught to live, to love, to live a holy life, and to be industrious. In fact, the, 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 I believe it's correct to say that the roots, the roots of commercial industry came out of those communities as these, as these, uh, these monks and those who lived there begin to produce things, and linen and wool and wine and other things that they would begin, they would have access and they would sell. And they begin to go all over, and so, so they begin to, they begin to create the early, uh, the early underpinnings of, of even capitalism. And those early underpinnings was, and, 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 I, and I realized that you, if you want to be a critic, you can say the Catholic Church got too rich and too powerful from this uh, approach. And perhaps they did, but they also spread something around the community. They spread, they, in many ways, they spread a lot of health. And, and, and don't get me started on why the, the Dark Ages are not the Dark Ages. Because everybody wants you to believe that. Because they want you to believe that, that the French Revolution was, oh, men finally got rid of religion and now we're smart. It's, it's, very, it's a very big social lie that's told throughout history. It's not corrupt. So people like Benedict had this huge impact, right? And uh, uh, much of the first production of wool and silk and things like that came out. They modeled productivity. uh, And and my point is this. Here's my point. Here's my whole point. Not that we need to do any of that stuff. We don't need to start a community farm necessarily. My point is when God's people get right with God and they get right with one another and they start working well together, you just never know how they might change the world. That's my point. Pentecost, Pentecost was a result of 10 days of healthy togetherness. In fact, the word together, chapter, chapter 2, verse 1, Acts chapter 2, verse 1, they were together. And I, I researched the word, that word together, and it, it, it's a much bigger word than the English language reveals. It meant, it was translated community. It was translated one mind. They weren't just physically together. They were together in soul, spirit, worship, they were together in every way. The King James, I, I, King James kind of gets it right here. They were in one mind, in one accord. And guess what happened on Pentecost? God is so attracted to
to unity and harmony among his people that when we are get harmony and harmony and unity and we start loving each other he's so attracted to us he starts pouring out the Holy Ghost on us he starts pouring out the Holy Spirit because God never just intended to pour out the Holy Spirit on individuals God always intended to pour out the Holy Spirit on his church God always intended to pour out his Holy Spirit on the people of God who were together Let's get together, okay, and see what God could do at Bethany Community Church. Amen? Amen.